Greetings from year-end climate talks in Katowice, Poland, where natural climate solutions are finally getting the attention they deserve, both in negotiations and on the sides. Everyone, it seems, agrees that we need to improve the way we manage our forests, farms, and fields, which can get us more than one-third of the way to meeting the Paris Agreement targets. But how do you make that happen? Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know its ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields, and not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature itself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we speak with Chris Meyer of the Environmental Defense Fund, which, by the way, is co-sponsoring my coverage from here, as well as Josefina Branya from WWF, Jason Funk from Carbon 180, Peter Graham of Climate Advisors, and David Burns of the National Wildlife Federation and the Accountability Framework. We sat down Thursday night for a wide-ranging discussion of progress here to date, how natural climate solutions are being incorporated into the Paris Agreement, and why this stuff is so complicated. I'm Jason Funk, currently at Carbon 180, which was formerly the Center for Carbon Removal. Hi, I'm Josefina Braña Varela from WWF. I'm Peter Graham with Climate Advisors. David Burns with the National Wildlife Federation. Chris Meyer with Environmental Defense Fund. And who, and who wants to start this ball rolling? Peter, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> Should let Dr. Funk do this, but um, <laughs> I think the, the best way to frame uh, this conversation is the IPCC 1.5 report showing that we've got 12 years before, if we're not on track to a pathway to less than 2 degrees, that we're in for some more trouble than we're already experiencing, just put it in layman's terms. One of the key things that comes out of that report uh, and has been uh, identified in a lot of the underlying science is the fact that the land sector, the forest and land sector, and that's what my my colleagues and I uh, are focusing on here, is underrepresented in action and support currently. Um, There are many reasons for that, and therefore there are many solutions that we are here to work on, both through the negotiations as they are occurring right now, but also through consultations with parties uh, and other organizations to help them identify the solutions and get on track to use them. We're currently on a pathway to about 3.7 degrees. Uh, It's a big gap. Um, The aggregate total of nationally determined contributions, or NDCs, even once we expect them to be updated by 2020, is still quite frankly, likely to show a gap. So what can we do, especially in the forest and land sector, to close that gap? 
coming out of the California summit back in September. Um, there was the 30 by 30 challenge, which I'll let Josefina speak to. Um, but it is a, a critical message that we're hoping that um, governments and others can respond to. Steve, one interesting part about the 1.5 degree report is that it has this nice discussion about how these options go together. One of them is about ambition, the overall ambition of what we're striving for. And the context of that report was saying, okay, if the world's goal is to keep things below 1.5 degrees or maybe to overshoot and come back, that requires transformational change in all sectors of the economy globally, worldwide, including the land sector. And then within that, there's this additional thing that needs to happen, which is we need to pull carbon out of the atmosphere that's already been emitted, that's already up there. And we have some options for doing that as well. Some of them are in the land sector and involve afforestation and agricultural changes, um, transformations in that sector that would lead to a lot more carbon sequestration. We know how that works. It's based on photosynthesis. It's not new technology. The second approach would be to use industrial technologies for things like bioenergy with carbon capture and storage or direct air capture technologies. Those things are at the demonstration phase technologically and it's unclear whether we could scale them up on the right time scale to meet that 1.5 degree goal. So it talks about in the report how you know a lot more near-term activity in the land sector could mean we don't have to rely on those industrial technologies later in the century after 2050 when supposedly we've hit zero net emissions and we need to go to negative emissions worldwide. And I think that's kind of a positive message that our community needs to hear is like this isn't fancy pants technology, this is like stuff we know how to do, we just need to ramp it up in a big way. And many of us have been working on these land sector issues for a long time, we see that potential and we know that there are some gaps and some underrepresentation, as Peter put it, which I think uh, is something we would strive to correct uh, very quickly. And that's something we're pushing for here in these negotiations. I think there's also actions that can be taken outside these negotiations that could help accelerate that too. I think in this COP, one, one thing that has struck me as uh, very positive is the emergence of nature-based solutions as a um, connecting thread. Uh, more and more uh, we are um, hearing uh, country delegates and other organizations participating here in this political forum sharing about the importance of, of, of nature. Um, we have heard this new idea of the Global Deal for Nature. The New Deal for Nature and People is an initiative that WWF launched a few months back to promote coordination among the three UN conventions that came out of the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro namely the Convention on Biological Diversity, the Convention on Desertification, and the Convention on Climate Change, and to coordinate these around the Sustainable Development Goals, which were launched in 2015 and which I covered in detail in Episode 5 of the Bionic Planet podcast. And um, there's a reference on, on the need for countries to collaborate and align efforts here in the UNFCCC, but also in the CBD, in the UNCCD, and uh, in the SDGs discussions to try to really come together uh, with a coherent uh, framework um, at the global level of this global deal for nature. So this is something that is permeating in the narrative of the negotiations, and hopefully it will um, have a, a good impact in, in whatever uh, is negotiated for the rulebook of Paris. Um, of course, I think um, 
some tensions uh, still remain, although I, I feel like there's a good environment uh, and people feel like they are going in the right track. I still feel like there's some tensions in the differentiation between developing and developed countries, and that's going to be important uh, for the land agenda, obviously, in terms of agriculture, in terms of how Red Plus and the land sector are going to be taken on board in this rulebook not now but probably before 2020 and then also in terms of the financial needs i think that's another point of tension that we are still seeing this may be a negotiation technique like not not to give all in terms of finance or not give all in terms of the the, the differentiation in their reporting requirements because i think uh, people are working under the assumption that nothing is agreed until everything is agreed and i think this is uh, more or less what we are hearing in this cop isn't that if i can just jump in on two things. One, um, you mentioned briefly the CBD, that's the Convention on Biodiversity, just to make that clear and not everybody knows what that is. And then also this issue of natural climate solutions getting more attention. And we've always heard that it should be coming through more often. You're saying you're actually really seeing evidence of that being taken up here in the, here in the, here in the, the, the talks, that, that, that this isn't just a word anymore. Well, and Steve and maybe Josefina, you can explain this. I think we've heard a couple different terms here, too. One was natural climate solutions. Another one is nature-based solutions. Maybe, I don't know, could someone explain maybe what's the difference between those? Or is there a difference, really? Are they the same thing? Just I, I think we are listening more and more uh, the term um, nature-based solutions uh, across the different fora, just because the other term natural climate solutions only makes reference to climate. But nature-based solutions implies that you put nature at the center of the decision-making in whatever forum, whether you are in Davos or you are in the Convention of Biological Diversity or you are in the uh, Convention of Climate Change. Nature-based means you're you are trying to incorporate nature in your decision-making to begin with and not as an afterthought. So I think it's important, uh, that consideration. It's broader, it's more comprehensive, and we are seeing more and more taking um, in that uh, terminology. Now to your question, Steve, I think the external forces and the big push that was made for uh, the global uh, climate action in California this year um, really uh, is uh, managing to permeate in the speech here or in the negotiations the importance of nature. Uh, we saw actions happening on the ground related to uh, food waste, um, land use planning, uh, uh, deforestation free supply chains, etc. that are concrete actions and real life actions and that I think it created a good momentum for us to more consistently hear the references to nature-based solutions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you had mentioned something about, um, what was it, nothing is finished until everything is finished? Nothing is agreed until everything is agreed. Okay, I mean, is that, isn't that the, the opposite of what the Paris Agreement is supposed to be, or am I missing something here? I don't, I don't understand what that means. I think uh, I'll let Peter, uh, because he has more, way more experience uh, uh, in the negotiations uh, strategies, but what I mean is the, the expectation here is that we really uh, try to move forward with the rule book as much as we can to final, finalize it, not to agree in one piece and not in the other one. Not to leave a piecemeal thing with a exactly. bunch of brackets and all that but kind I don't of know, stuff. Peter, not to kick the can down. Okay. No, that's exactly right. It's just the... You're, you're talking to us in the middle of the first week of two weeks of negotiations. Things will be different tomorrow. Things will be different actually in about three hours. Um, and so the concept of nothing is agreed until everything is agreed is because negotiations happen in small rooms. Um, it's not until the closing plenary um, and the ministerial high-level uh, segments that some of the political uh, negotiations are resolved. Um, and, of course, we all hope that um, some of these 
uh, cross-cutting issues of differentiation and, uh, and finance um, are resolved as clearly as possible. Um, what we don't want to see is a fairly loose Paris rulebook that results in two to five years of further negotiations on operationalizing the Paris rulebook, um, which some of us may have remembered from, from Kyoto days. So. Mm-hmm. The Kyoto Protocol was a top-down, one-size-fits-all agreement for developed countries to freeze emissions at 1992 levels and begin reducing them, and to help developing countries, the poorer countries, slow emissions as well. It failed in part because every country is different, and the Paris Agreement recognizes that. It lets each country create its own nationally determined contribution, or NDC, which is a National Climate Action Plan. Remember that acronym, NDC, you'll hear it a lot today. The Paris Agreement also creates mechanisms for helping countries increase their ambition or go beyond their NDCs, in part by helping each other. You'll hear us talk a lot today about Article 6. Sometimes people refer to it as Article 6.2 or 6.4 or 6.8 for individual paragraphs. But Article 6 is one of the key articles focused on international cooperation. And it creates guidelines for buying and selling emission reduction credits between countries in the form of so-called internationally transferred mitigation outcomes, or ITMOs, which countries can only use to help each other reduce emissions below their NDC, not just to meet them. The biggest challenge to creating ITMOs beyond determining what is and is not a recognized emission reduction, is agreeing on how to track them. By the way, if you want to help me increase my ambition on these podcasts, you can give me a good five-star review on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you access me. That's important, because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And only by reaching hundreds of millions of minds, literally, will we fix this mess. We can do it, if we all work together. Finally, if you really like what you hear, these shows are mostly listener-supported. Today's show is a byproduct of interviews I conducted for Ecosystem Marketplace, so you can thank my employer, Forest Trends, for its existence. But the most successful shows are the ones that I create explicitly for the podcast audience, with multiple voices and story structure. For those, I need to put in time, and time costs money if I want to eat and pay my bills. The Environmental Defense Fund has stepped up with funding for my coverage from here, but you can support me as well by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. You can help keep me afloat for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Finally, you can help just by switching to a different platform, namely, access me through the Radio Public platform. That's Radio Public like public radio, but backwards, which pays me up to 15 cents per listener, depending on how much of each episode you hear to the end. One of the main concerns that we're having and we're seeing in a lot of conversations around here is this idea of no double counting. So whether it be in in 6.2 or 6.4, if there is some kind of uh, mission reduction, whether it be International Transferable Mitigation Outcome, an ITMO, that acronym, which is great, or something, again, like a new CDM or the Sustainable Development Mechanism, that if something's transferred and then counted against the, the buyer's, you might say, counting towards the buyer's NDC, that it's not also counted towards 
the country that provided it or where it came from. And this is, you know, challenging because it could be the case that it's coming from a, a project in a country, not necessarily generated by uh, the country's government in itself. The CDM that Chris referred to is the Clean Development Mechanism, which is the mechanism created for handling international offsets under the Kyoto Protocol. The CDM wasn't as complicated as ITMOs are, in part because developing countries didn't have to account for their emissions under Kyoto. But he also mentioned emission reductions generated by individual projects within a country as opposed to emission reductions generated by a country itself. What's he talking about? Well, in one of our earlier episodes, episode two, we looked at a project that the Hadza people of Tanzania were developing to save forests in and around their territory. They generated red plus offsets, which are offsets created by saving endangered forest or reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation of forests. Red, R-E-D-D. In their case, they promoted sustainable agriculture practices that took the pressure off the forest, and they sold the offsets to local ecotourism operators who used them to reduce their carbon footprints. In that case, the offsets stayed within Tanzania, so no international transfer was necessary. But under the Paris Agreement, if they sell them to a company outside Tanzania, there is a question of which country gets credit for the reductions. Basically, it's up to the country of origin. If the Tanzanian government wants to let its emission reductions be transferred to another country, it can do so. But then it can't count those against its own emissions. So does this mean people outside Tanzania can't buy them if Tanzania says they can't be transferred? No, it doesn't. You or I could still buy the offsets, no matter where we're at, be it South Korea, the Netherlands, or the United States. We can do so to reduce our own footprint but from an international carbon accounting perspective, we're not helping our own country reduce its emissions. We're helping Tanzania reduce its. Confusing? Yeah, but don't worry. I'll explain it again when we loop back to the discussion. And the key thing to understand is that all this will pay off when the Paris Agreement kicks in in 2020. It's like a giant set of dominoes lined up and ready to start falling. These are the types of things that uh, they're struggling with right now, uh, and it's changing, again, the system that's currently in place, the current CDM uh, type of project and crediting doesn't consider double, no double counting. And this shows the complexity of the negotiations because it also links to the, the transparency negotiations. And if you can't understand what's happening and how's it being transacted, where is it showing up in the different inventories of these countries, then again, we can't ensure the environmental integrity of, of the system. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the double counting issue is, is interesting, and also the whole issue of when do you transfer an emission reduction. Let's say there's a deforestation project in Indonesia, and somebody in South Korea pays for that emission reduction to take place. Can the emission reduction then be transferred from Indonesia to South Korea? And my understanding is that depends on Indonesia. If they say yes, you can have it, then you can. So there's there's also this whole issue of how you can have payments for performance that aren't, don't involve emission reductions being transferred between countries. Correct. And some of this is, you know, we took care of the Warsaw Framework for Red Plus, where it was mandated that a national focal point be responsible for all the emission reductions that might be generated from Red, whether from a national program or a project nested, as we say, into that national program. Nested means embedding one of these projects into a national program. 
so that emissions generated by a project automatically get folded into the country's emissions. And the Warsaw Framework is a cluster of agreements for RED, that's reducing emissions from deforestation and degradation again, reached at the talks in Warsaw, Poland. There are those considerations. I mean, there are some things that, again, we have some guidance already from the Warsaw Framework for Red Plus, but this Article 6, you know, how these things will be transferred, uh, is still to be determined and, again, a, a challenging point of the negotiations here at this moment. We're, we're not only talking about the NFCCC here, there's also ICAO. ICAO, that's another wrinkle in all of this. It stands for International Civil Aviation Organization, and it's another UN body that covers international air travel, which is not covered by the Paris Agreement because emissions from international flights are emitted, well, internationally, between countries. As you know, if you heard episode 8, ICAO agreed to cap greenhouse gas emissions from international flights at 2020 levels from the year 2021 onward. And airlines that can't reduce their emissions internally can offset them through a program called CORSIA, which stands for Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. CORSIA. Remember that word because it will come up again. And the question is, what kind of offsets will be allowed? And how will they be accounted for? For a deep dive, check out episode 8 of Bionic Planet. And again, if you like what you hear and want to hear more, you can support me by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. You can help keep me afloat for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. And on the Patreon site, that's without dots or dashes. But it's patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. You can help just by switching to a different platform. Namely, access me through the Radio Public podcast app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards, which pays me up to 15 cents per listener, depending on how much of each episode you hear to the end. If I can get more funding, I can hire a sound designer to edit some of these for me, which takes a ton of time, and I can put in more of my own time as well. There's a lot of folks who may not understand the linkages and the, the differences but between those systems, um, and it, it gets complicated pretty, yeah, pretty let's, quickly. Let's get into that. It, it was left out of the uh, Paris Agreement because these are international missions that don't, aren't attributed to any individual country. So they've been meeting outside the UNFCCC, right? They're right there, but they're tangential to the UNFCCC. And what they've decided is emissions from airlines will be frozen at 2020 levels, uh, meaning they can't go up after that, but they, they stay the same. And then airlines will be able to offset any increase in emissions after 2020. And the question is, what offsets can be used and will, the, will land use be included in that? Yeah, maybe it would be useful to kind of think about this as there are three moving pieces in play here. So first, under the Paris Agreement, we have countries. They're making their own contributions. They're articulating them in their nationally determined contributions, or NDCs. For developing countries especially, it's not expected or required that they will have complete coverage of their whole economy initially in their NDCs. They can sort of choose what parts of their economy or what activities they want to be part of that NDC. In some cases, they will be looking for support from external sources of finance or other 
capacity building or what we call means of implementation, and they'll be requesting that from other countries sort of in a general way, like, we would like to do this, but it's conditional on receiving some sort of support. Another wrinkle, some NDCs are conditional, meaning countries have unilaterally committed to a certain reduction, but said they'd go further if other countries help them out. So that's moving piece one, is that their NDCs, they might not be complete in all sources of emissions through in a country. The second moving piece is ICAO, which you just brought up. This is a market that ends up being external to uh, any country obligations. Uh, it emerged from the UNFCCC process where bunker fuels, so-called bunker fuels, those associated with no country, meaning aviation and marine transport emissions, those had to be covered some other way. So ICAO and the UNFCCC and the IMO sort of reached this agreement that, okay, we'll develop our own system. And they chose to do that in ICAO through a system called Corsia, where the airlines could commit to some sort of emissions target and then find ways to reduce. And that allows the possibility for finance from uh, the, the airlines to pay for emissions reductions that happen in countries, including in the land sector, and that that would be financed through that mechanism, and it would not necessarily fall under NDCs, but it could. That relationship is what they're trying to define. Then the third piece is what you mentioned also is Article 6.2, internationally transferred mitigation outcomes, which are essentially emissions reductions or sequestration. The rules about how those things get transferred, how they get counted, as Chris alluded to, that's still being worked out. And they have to think about all three of those moving pieces in order to get that system right without there being over or under counting. So obviously what everybody's worried about is that emissions reduction will be counted multiple times in multiple places. That means countries are taking credit for things maybe multiple times that makes it difficult to sort of see the big picture globally of are we actually on target? Are we actually making real reductions? Or are we just counting things multiple times the way some people claim votes get counted multiple times or something like that, you know, like we actually need to know the real accounts. We need to be able to sum that up at a global level. And then obviously people don't want to be providing finance or support for things that someone else takes credit for or, you know, somehow gets paid for two or three times. That's really not um, in the interest of the people providing that finance. They want to make sure that they're getting what they pay for. Can I add, Steve, just I guess uh, the key in these discussions is to find a way to incentivize a market that promotes environmental integrity and um, helps to ratchet up ambition. And I think the, uh, there are pieces in the puzzle that we don't have yet, but one, as, men as uh, Jason mentioned, is all countries should be including forest and land in their NDCs. This is key because uh, we want economy-wide targets and we want to have environmental integrity, so we have to have the possibility to look at all the sectors and economy-wide systems in the countries to, no to know the real level of effort. So that should be one condition. Uh, all countries should be including land uh, and forest if they are going to, um, to go into uh, this um, uh, collaborations to, to transfer mitigation outcomes. Um, and also it has to do with finding a way in which countries collaborate to meet NDCs, which right now we know they are not even ambitious enough. So for me, the key is how can we focus in rapid implementation of NDCs so in the next round we can be more ambitious. And maybe a market mechanism can help by saying, okay, I will, I will help uh, country A, will help country B to achieve faster their NDC and whatever mitigation is above what they promised, then they can you know, transfer these mitigation outcomes. But not, uh, not to start transferring mitigation outcomes if, if we are not even meeting the NDCs, uh, because then that means that uh, the atmosphere is not going to see any benefits and we are not going to reach the targets.
Yeah, so the market mechanisms have to be part of increased ambition, I think was the exact, and that's actually in the Paris Agreement. But does this create an incentive to make your ambitions low in your NDC? So you can say, okay, we want to do the market stuff later, so let's keep the... Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, we don't have the, all the pieces uh, of the puzzle together because uh, there are all, all sorts of uh, decisions that can be made here that can have pers perverse outcomes. Mm -hmm. So we really need to have safeguards in place to really push for uh, the highest ambition uh, possible. There could be a race to the bottom or there could be a race to the top. I think a lot of us are thinking about how countries, in addition to what they've already taken trying to do domestically, especially from industrialized countries, you might say the, the northern more richer countries, can make additional ambition and make a commitment to say, all right, I'm going to do another 5%, and I'm going to do that 5% by supporting other countries, like Josefina mentioned. And that would be the increased ambition that we need. And in order to do that, I'm going to use a tool like a market and maybe red. So those are kind of the things that we're thinking about, and I think as a civil society, we're going to be really focused on when we see what countries are starting to do and the agreements they're starting to make between each other, that it is, again, meeting this extra ambition and not lowering the ambition. I think this also gets into transparency that countries will need to explain why it is that they're doing what they're doing and uh, how they've arrived at their decisions is, is this ambition that they need to explain why it's, why it's ambitious and that it's in part up to civil society to, to be the arbiter of, of, of that ambition. What are the specific parts of the negotiations that relate to these issues you're, you're talking about? One part of the 6.2, uh, which is cooperative approaches for international transfer of mitigation outcomes, um, is the, the issue of inside versus outside of NDCs, the scope of NDCs, and if a host country, when put it that way, where the emissions reductions or removals are occurring, would like to sell or receive foreign direct investment from the exchange of these, transfer these mitigation outcomes to ensure environmental integrity that that those emissions reductions or removals that are being transferred are within the scope of that country's unconditional uh, contribution their NDC at which point once they are transferred there would be a corresponding adjustment so they would recognize an increase in that host country and then the buyer or acquirer country would be able to record in their accounts at the national level the emission reduction against additional NDC. So that's that's one issue and it is a, difficult right now. This, the status or the state, excuse me, of um, the NDCs that we see before us now, it's inconsistent. The private sector wants certainty, not only certainty that they are the, you know, the buyer is the only owner of this, um, but that it is something real and its uh, validity will be um, recognized in whichever market they intend to use it. Um, and so that part of the negotiations, I'm, while talking about 6.2, it's linked to negotiations around accounting and mitigation and NDCs, the type of information that should be included um, and the format of that information. Um, all greater clarity and therefore response by the countries in their updates of their NDCs before 2020 will help to improve this. Now there will be countries that even just from lack of information, um, like least developed countries in certain areas, will be unable to confidently increase the scope of their NDC to cover those sectors initially. And they should not be penalized for that, but there are other 
ways of supporting the development of the information necessary for their national inventories that would be the basis for an NDC. I think um, uh, to mention also uh, the transparency framework related to action and support. So it's not only um, the discussions on how countries will need to share information with the convention on, on, uh, on the progress and what the, the, the progress in, in the implementation um, of their uh, plans uh, is going, but also uh, in terms of finance and, and how the financial commitments are being fulfilled or not and how we are progressing on that end. So I think that's um, a key piece of the rule book that we are seeing right now. Um, and, and the final one, which is not really related to the rule book, but it's a provision that was approved uh, to have a platform for indigenous peoples and local communities. Um, it's also something that is under discussion in this session. Um, and I think there's some uh, considerations in terms of how do you allow participation of actors that are not the, the usual suspects in the UNFCCC, meaning like the national governments? Uh, how do you open that channel of communication with uh, local communities and indigenous peoples directly to feed into the platform? How about agriculture? Yeah, so there's a lot of really interesting work coming out on the agriculture issue lately, and it seems to be picking up steam and getting traction in the U.S. in particular. Um, we've been talking a lot about soil health lately in the U.S., and when you improve soil health, carbon comes along with that. So you're getting this benefit to the climate. Here in the negotiations, um, there's been a long process. This, this issue has kind of languished for a while. It was part of the original convention in 92. Uh, it wasn't really until 2011 that the countries agreed to actually start having real discussions about this. So by that point, Red Plus was already well underway. The forest issues were being dealt with and, and people understood what that all meant. But in agriculture, we hadn't had those same discussions. And there's sort of a different group of people with interests in agriculture. It's been a long evolution of like talking about, so what are the things we need to deal with here? There's been a special emphasis on the needs of smallholder farmers who are make up the most numbers, that they feed the most people in the world. And it was acknowledged that we want to make sure whatever we do in the climate space is also serving them and helping give them new opportunities as well. Last year, the parties agreed um, not just to have workshops and discussions and technical uh, conversations about these issues, but to bring them in in a formal way into the negotiations. And they decided to do that um, under two subsidiary bodies. One subsidiary bodies are negotiating groups within the UNFCCC that focus on specific issues. Bodies, one of which was deals with science and technological issues, and the other deals with implementation. So it was very clear, especially coming from developing countries, that they wanted to have practical things that they could take home, plug in, like they wanted real applicable stuff. They didn't want more research necessarily, they wanted things that they could take home and apply and implement. So at this meeting, we've had sort of the first kickoff of that series of discussions that will carry through the end of 2020. They've developed sort of a schedule of the different issues they want to tackle. Um, this one was a little bit of a, a look back at all the issues they've talked about so far and those technical discussions, and they wanted to bring that all into play. Um, they also wanted to uh, bring in other uh, organizations that are linked to the UNFCCC process and who are also doing work that 
relates to agriculture to understand what they're doing so we could kind of put together the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle and understand what the overall picture is who could do what where there are still gaps um, and what capacities already exist that we don't have to recreate they had a workshop uh, earlier this week uh, we heard from those other bodies and they made a series of presentations um, the outcome of that seemed to be well there's some overlap here there's also still some missing pieces so we think there is real work that needs to be done going forward Yesterday then they met, not in a workshop, but in an actual negotiating session, and uh, a number of countries said, okay, well, we feel more informed, we know what's going on, uh, but we think that there are these gaps and we would like to talk more about those gaps as we go forward. So they'll continue along the schedule of this roadmap. Uh, the process is called the Coronivia process, the joint work on agriculture, and that will continue according to the roadmap they agreed at the last COP. Uh, they've begun that process here in a formal way, and then they've also started to realize that there may be additional issues they need to add to that agenda that they need to discuss, which was envisioned, and there's flexibility in there to do that. Um, and they're starting to realize, like, okay, well, we now have some things to talk about in more depth. Uh, where they'll take it from here, we'll, we'll see, like, where it goes. Um, I think there will probably be a decision coming from here that might make a request to those other bodies to say, hey, can you all get together? Can we you know, understand more clearly the complete picture? At least one country, New Zealand, has volunteered to host a workshop of its own to help accelerate this process to add additional information. Uh, that's going to be a little tricky to fit into this roadmap that we've already got, but it's definitely a well-intended contribution to say like, hey, New Zealand wants to contribute to the success of this process. And it would be great if other parties would see that and say, oh, maybe, maybe there's more that could be done there um, by other parties who might step up to that high bar that they've set. We're kind of in early days here. You might have a comparative, at least the UNFCCC side of where agriculture is at, where RED was at back in 2007. And now we just kind of had Bali in the comparison. And we're trying to accelerate this, though, because we need action in this space. Uh, we know that, you know, based on all these analysis. And the challenge is going to be is what can we get decided and how many things, guidance and methodologies can we hopefully curate, let's say, by the end of 2020, so a little more than two years from now, that, again, will give the oomph or the push to the countries to include these things and start taking action in this space because this is the sector that is growing and it is projected to grow a lot. And we really need to figure out how to stop that and then turn the corner on it too while feeding people and providing them livelihoods and everything else that is special. It's not that we want to stop the growth of production of food. We want to stop the growth of emissions and making that break is something that's happened in other sectors already. In the energy sector, it's happening. Um, in agriculture, it's, it's hard. Um, but there are some promising pathways and more work to be done. And it seems like it's possible we should think about that the same way we've thought about energy and transportation, about how do we decouple those two things. One of the things that really helped to unlock progress in the red negotiations was when they finally tackled um, safeguards. And one of the things that hasn't really come up, I don't think, in a meaningful way yet in the agriculture negotiations is, is that topic. It's great that they developed the roadmap and there's a clear pathway forward. One of the things I'd like to see, see them do uh, is start folding safeguards in along the way because it's clear that right now, uh, over the next few sessions, there's not, there's not dedicated space for that. Um, there's lots of practices that have mitigation and adaptation benefits not all of them are going to be great for biodiversity. Not all of them are great for people. So it's important to think of that, some of the perverse What would be an example of, uh, of a safeguard that might be necessary? Something that if we don't do it right, it could go sideways. 
land tenure would be would be a big one, really important in red, very important in agriculture. Um, that those who care for the land need to have clear either legal or um, customary rights over that land to be able to ensure that they can meet their own subsistence needs. I know we're running out of time. Maybe to wrap it up, what would be a good outcome? What, what would make you say, yeah, I feel really good about this? From my perspective, a good outcome would be a complete Paris rule book. So we have a clear uh, guidance for Article 6.2 country they have no reason then not to take action that they have the rules and so they can start to do these bilateral deals yeah I think that's right um, getting the Paris rule book in good shape I would love to walk away really knowing the the rules by which we should be judging countries NDCs and whether or not they're actually implementing on them a lot of my work is on deforestation commod agricultural commodity supply chains would love to know whether countries are, are considering that in their ambition and future pledges. Maybe three things um, to echo Steve's point. The important part of the Paris rulebook coming out of here would be clear guidance for NDCs, so clearer than came out of, of Lima and other, other meetings, so that as countries get prepared to submit their new and updated NDCs by 2020, um, that they are comprehensive, clear, and consistent as much as possible. Secondly, um, similar to, to what Chris was mentioning, um, from our perspective, in order to close the gap between what we see as a politically feasible domestic mitigation ambition, um, that that be supplemented by commitments to international cooperation on mitigation and adaptation, but particularly on mitigation, noting that in the forest and land sector, mitigation and adaptation come from the same activities. Finally, what isn't agreed here, there should be clear work programs of what needs to be decided beyond Katowice. And while not having it resolved here is not the best solution, having clarity on the work programs going forward and the timeline for those is also um, better than, than nothing. You know, these recent reports that have come out have really emphasized the fact that there's so much potential in the land sector. The land sector has been really underrepresented over time. There's been this perception that we really needed to focus on fossil fuels and getting the emissions from those to be reduced, and that's been appropriate. But we haven't done that fast enough, and we're also sort of missing out on a lot of the potential in the land sector. Um, so that underinvestment, underrepresentation of those solutions, it's only a few percent of what's being spent to you know, address this issue, and the, it could be as much as 30% or more of the solution. So to my mind, like, we need to really activate that, but somewhat paradoxically, what that means is that the land sector doesn't get called out or separated in these negotiations, that it's sort of folded in with everything else that's going on. We've seen in the past where when the land sector was singled out and said, well, we need special rules for all this, we need to like tackle this in a different way, um, that's, that's contributed to this underrepresentation and underinvestment problem. This sounds a bit strange for a bunch of folks who work on the land sector to say, but like we'd actually like to see not that much uh, reference to the land sector. We need a few sort of specialized things that are unique to the sector to be um, called out in the appropriate place. Um, but for the most part, we just want it to be part of the overall solution so that it can be treated on the same level as, as the other things that we need to be do doing to contribute to the, the solutions. For me, the most important part uh, coming out of this session is that we uh, see a balanced and fair 
outcome of progress in all the pieces of the rulebook. I think this is going to be fundamental if we really want to uh, close the negotiations next year. Um, if we don't see uh, progress across the board, we are going to end in a situation in which we are going to start playing with bargaining chips and I think that's very dangerous and we don't have time to do that. So hopefully um, in the couple of days uh, that the negotiators have to come um, into a conclusion of their uh, of their deliberations we can see that balance and fairness understanding and accepting that uh, maybe it's not going to be perfect but as long as there's goodwill and transparency I think we can uh, we can be in good shape to to make operational the Paris Agreement. Steve uh I would like to hear from my colleagues here around the table about what was like the most interesting thing they've heard so far at the negotiation related to red and forest. Maybe not necessarily related to the, again the negotiations themselves, but what is happening in a country that kind of gives you optimism that we're making progress. So we're doing some work in Colombia uh, right now on zero deforestation supply chains, and I think that's a great example of a government that has seized on kind of the power of, of harnessing supply chains to help them achieve emissions reductions and, and reductions in deforestation. And I think there's not many other countries in the world where, where that's happening in kind of a true public-private partnership format where they're, they're really bought into it and invested in its success. For me, one very exciting thing, uh, Steve, is to start seeing uh, collaboration between state and non-state actors uh, at scale. And we saw a commitment from Walmart and Unilever to advance uh, a collaboration in a, in a specific geography. So no, no, not only adopting policies and, and regulations for their own companies, but actually uh, going a step forward um, and saying, okay, we're going to do something tangible and at scale and in a geography. And that's, that's the one in, in Malaysia, right? That's in yeah. Malaysia, in Sabah. Uh, and I think this is a model uh, that uh, can uh, has the potential to bring other actors to the table. And this type of collaborations between governments and uh, businesses is what we need to see more and more. I guess I could speak to the importance and the work going on um, related to the financial markets. Speaking from the perspective of the forest and land sector, there are billions of dollars, if not trillions, going into activities in the land sector, forest and agriculture and others, um, that are not consistent with countries' climate change plans or ambitions. Um, that may not necessarily be the fault of the countries themselves, but of the markets uh, and the incentives that are there. And also, and this is where uh, more work and more realization is starting to have impact, is that there are material financial risks associated with climate change impacts and with deforestation and other activities and uh, land degradation themselves. Um, the more we can translate the impacts that we know of as sort of <laughs> scientists and policy wonks um, into the language of chief financial officers and CEOs uh, and I into the capital markets themselves, then we'll start to see that shift of what we call gray finance towards more green finance, um, in addition to new investments, uh, impact or otherwise, uh, to support more innovative activities in the, in the forest and land sector. On the issue of forests, we've seen the Red Plus mechanism has been in existence for a little while now. Uh, we've seen countries participating, we've seen success stories, we've seen some remaining challenges, we've seen finance flowing in, we've seen a huge increase in the technical understanding and capacity within these countries to understand their forests and what's going on, what's been driving deforestation and forest degradation. 
something that uh, was hopeful to me today as I had a meeting earlier with the country of Suriname. That's a country that's committed to maintain its forest cover at 93% of its, of its national area. It's phenomenal, you know, it's a huge amount of forest for a country to maintain. And they were asking us among civil society, you know, we see that this is happening. Um, we see that there are these things in Red Plus. The plus issues are about maintaining these forest stocks. We've had a lot of emphasis on reducing deforestation, which is appropriate. But Suriname wants to say, is there something in here that can help us protect our forest resources too? And the collaboration that Josefina talked about, they're talking about doing across countries as well. So they want to bring other high forest, low deforestation countries together and say, can we pursue something that um, adds on? For me, the hopeful part is seeing this Red Plus idea continue to evolve and be applicable to new places and also be relevant to different types of interests. So these high forest, low deforestation countries are the places where there's the biggest repositories of biodiversity. And if we can do something in this process that helps that, um, that's going to be fantastic. It's also the place where indigenous people um, still reside and, you know, maintain the land in, in it, the state that it's been in for a long time. And so if we can provide new opportunities for them to uh, continue those practices in a way that they're not being threatened by these external incursions and um, other threats, that's going to be great too. So it's sort of a hopeful moment. Uh, the other topic that is being developed in this session is the Talanoa Dialogue. The Talanoa Dialogue is a forum that was decided uh, within the UNFCCC to promote um, discussions uh, on how uh, countries can uh, achieve higher ambition, uh, to discuss challenges and, uh, and ways to move forward with uh, meeting their NDCs and how they can actually strive for more ambition. And uh, Talanoa uh, is a Fijian word that means dialogue and, and, and in an open space where you can have trust with each other. Uh, this year we've seen uh, many countries moving forward with internal, national or local dialogues and we saw a couple of events on um, Talanoa dialogues with indigenous groups, uh, groups in Peru and Colombia. So they have come together to discuss how they can actually contribute to meeting their indices of their countries. Um, and this is uh, something that is uh, bringing a little bit of fresh air to the negotiations because it brings um, the external force of actual uh, tangible actions that are happening in real life. Josefina Branya of WWF closing out this edition of Bionic Plan. Together with Chris Meyer of the Environmental Defense Fund, Jason Funk of Carbon 180, Peter Graham of Climate Advisors, David Burns of the National Wildlife Federation and the Accountability Framework. If you want to hear more of these episodes, give me a good five-star review on iTunes, Radio Public, Stitcher, or wherever you access me. That's important because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And only by reaching hundreds of millions of minds, literally, will we fix this mess. We can do it if we all work together. Finally, if you like what you hear, these shows are mostly listener-supported. Today's show is a byproduct of interviews I conducted for Ecosystem Marketplace, so you can thank my employer, Forest Trends, for its existence. But the most successful shows are the ones that I create explicitly for the podcast audience, with multiple voices and story structure. For those, I need to put in time, and time costs money if I want to eat and pay my bills. The Environmental Defense Fund has stepped up with funding for my coverage from here, but you can support me as well by becoming a patron at bionic-planet.com. You can help keep me afloat for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com 
forward slash bionic planet. You can help just by accessing me through the Radio Public podcast app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards, which pays me up to 15 cents per listener, depending on how much of each episode you hear to the end. I hope you stay to the end on this one, and I'll have more coming to you in the next few days. Until then, I am Steve Zwick of Forest Trends, coming to you from Katowice, Poland. Thanks for listening.